Grace and peace be yours from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text for this day of Pentecost that we mark is from the second chapter of Acts. You heard it read a moment ago. Considering those who did see these disciples, these Galilean disciples, all speaking suddenly in languages they hadn't previously known, we're told of these who saw them and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. As far our text, friends in our Lord Jesus Christ, especially Nicholas, you today on this day of your confirmation. I don't have to tell you that communication is awfully important, even for those considered great communicators. President Ronald Reagan, noted even by his political foes and adversaries as one who really had earned the title and name the great communicator, Reagan once recounted the time when, well, yet governor of this state, California, a time that he made a speech in Mexico City. After I'd finished speaking, he recalled, I, I sat down to rather unenthusiastic applause. I was a little bit embarrassed by that. The speaker who followed me spoke in Spanish, which I didn't understand, and, and he was being applauded about every paragraph. And so, to hide my embarrassment, I started clapping before everyone else and longer than anyone else until our ambassador leaned over to me and said, Governor, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's interpreting your speech. There's a lot of that sort of misunderstanding in the world today, particularly when it comes to God. Since the fall into sin, all men have been born with a sin-darkened understanding, or perhaps we should rightly say misunderstanding, of God. Born with a natural ignorance. It's a harsh word, but it's not mine. Scriptures. With a natural ignorance of who God is, of what kind of God he is, of, of what things this God has done. Namely, what things he's done for us. Natural man does not know these things because, as Scripture plainly says, natural man, as Paul writes, cannot, in the Greek, is not able to know the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. They're communicated by the Holy Spirit. They're understood only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Scripture would explain further. Paul would write in another place, What man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? In other words, who knows you but you? Who knows you better? Uh, who knows you better than anyone else but you? And so is Paul's reasoning. And then he goes on to say, Even so, no one naturally knows the things of God except the spirit of God who reveals them. And so Martin Luther would explain, and Nicholas, you know this phrase well, and many others of you do too as well in your confirmation training. Luther would explain, I cannot, he says, by my own reason or strength, know the true God. In Luther's words, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit, he says, calls me by the gospel and enlightens me. With his gifts. 
You see, by nature, our understanding is sin-darkened. And while natural man doesn't and he can't understand the things of God, that's to say that there is foreign to him and, and incomprehensible, as a, as a foreign and unknown language would be, still, while he doesn't and can't understand these things naturally, that certainly doesn't stop us, mankind, from clapping wildly and applauding ourselves over things that in sinful ignorance we suppose and we think and consider to be so praiseworthy. The truth of it is, man has really never stopped, has he, building his towers to heaven. Void of the spirit-given knowledge that we can't. Heaven, heaven can't be invaded by us. And yet, as brick upon brick, so man of his own device has, has built argument upon argument, conjecture upon conjecture, doctrines upon doctrines, striving in the self-congratulatory strain of his own efforts and reason, striving heavenward on self-made ladders that never actually get off the ground. Our understandings darkened so that we're confused. A few years ago, a report by the American Association of, of Publishers indicated that the publishing and reading of, of religious books had increased 40% in one year. It's quite a jump, but it goes to show religion's not at all dead. It's just very, very confused. It's so confused because, as said, well, ignorant about just about who God is and what he's done, still man professes widely about him. But many different things. Some profess a God who's just wrath against our sin can be placated and pacified by the mere regular observance, outward observance and recital of, of certain basic things according to certain times. Others profess a God far warmer, you might even say a bit more cuddly, much like a house pet that can be held close and warm for comfort, but a God that would really never tell you what it thinks. One whose high and holy will of right and wrong seems conveniently to conform like soft rubber to the desires and wishes of those who would claim him. Some profess no God at all, but a, a freedom from any lasting pain in this world by a nirvana achieved along a, a path of enlightenment. Some profess that, a man, that as man is, God once was. And as God is, man too can become. Others profess that there's not just one God of this world. There are many gods but, gods, but with limitations, the same limitations and shortcomings as men. And still others brick by brick. Brick by brick they build not a tower toward God, but an altar to man, insisting that he, the human being, is the pinnacle of evolution and the ultimate arbiter of everything that is true, if indeed there is truth at all. Confusion. Confusion. Because certainly they can't all be right. Confusion. A confusion about God, a confusion that should surprise us very little. For by nature our understanding is indeed darkened. That's why the Holy Spirit's work is so important 
He is the great communicator, the greatest communicator, the great communicator of the things and the works and the words of the true God. And as we consider our Pentecost text, isn't that exactly what the Holy Spirit was communicating there to, in, in the text on that day of Pentecost? Isn't that exactly who the Holy Spirit was communicating on that day of Pentecost, namely Christ, the Son of God, who was given over to death for transgressions and then raised to life again to ensure our forgiveness, our texts for today, cut off about one-third of the way through the Pentecost account. You read the entire sermon there that Peter gives, it's entirely about Christ, about Christ Jesus and what he's done, certainly. Certainly, the, the speaking in previously unlearned languages was impressive indeed, but it was, mind you, albeit miraculous, it was indeed merely a means to an end that day. A means used by the Holy Spirit to a particular end. God, the Holy Spirit, that great communicator, that day was taking advantage of the fact that on that one day, some 50 days after Pentecost, and so the Greeks called it, or rather 50 days after the Passover, and so the Greeks called it Pentecost, the Holy Spirit there was taking advantage of the fact when, when these Jews from all over the world, the ends of the earth, had, had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, this, this harvest feast. The Holy Spirit was taking advantage of the fact that all the ends of the earth had come there to one place, Jerusalem. And he, the great communicator that the Holy Spirit is, was not about to let them all disperse and go back to their homes and to their lands without first imparting to them, communicating to them in their own languages, what the mighty work of God that he's done in Christ Jesus. And you heard it in our text. For today, the reading, the sermon text, those astonished Jews from all over the world said what? They said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Those apostles were speaking about what Christ had done. The saving work of Christ Jesus, you see, that's really what Pentecost is all about. Martin Luther puts, puts that well, too. He says this, This is the office and work of the Holy Spirit, to reveal through the gospel what great and glorious things God has done for us in Christ. Namely, that he has redeemed us from sin and death and, and the power of the devil. That he has taken us into his grace and protection. He's given himself utterly and entirely for us. He's right, isn't he? Luther's right. Made, certainly made possible by the Holy Spirit, yet this day is really all about Christ and what he's done. Because you see, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit didn't take on our flesh, did he? Christ did. The Holy Spirit didn't live a life to perfection so that you and I could wear that perfection all over us in baptism to cover our imperfection. But Jesus Christ did. The Holy Spirit didn't suffer literally and truly all hell to pay for the transgressions that we've committed against God, but Jesus Christ has. 
Pentecost is truly about Christ, isn't it? But the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that, as Jesus said, takes of what is mine. What he's said and namely what he's done. He takes of what is mine and declares it to you. You and I who otherwise wouldn't and couldn't know the way to the only God and to heaven. Through the work, solely through the work of Christ Jesus. How? Consider how did the Holy Spirit declare the work of Christ on that Pentecost day? No differently, I tell you, than he does here to you today. The greatest miracle of Pentecost is not the sound of rushing mighty wind or tongues of fire or Galilean disciples speaking in languages they hadn't known before. The greatest miracle of Pentecost is the creation of trust in Christ in individual hearts. That day numbering 3,000 we're told. This day today, numbering well over that, over the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit worked that day through preaching. Just as he does today. Through preaching, scriptural preaching. Because as you heard in our text, St. Peter had a text too, didn't he, from Joel. And he would go on based on that text to preach Christ and him crucified. Through preaching. And mind you, not a booming voice from heaven. We don't hear the Holy Spirit in a sense at all that day, do we? But the voice of a fisherman named Peter, who'd been charged by Christ to proclaim what Peter had seen with his own eyes and heard Christ say the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And it wasn't a baptism with tongues of fire and rushing wind that created faith. Remember those miraculous things? What did they do? They really only piqued the curiosity of those in the city that day, that, and, and that drew some together. The bewildered, it drew them together to see what was going on. No, it was the same watery baptism through which you and, and I, through which we've been called into Christ's family, His church. The same baptism administered that day to 3,000 that day and to many, many more the world over this day. Word, sacrament. If on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit then was working by the very same and seemingly ordinary things that he has ever since, you might say, well, all right, then what's the big deal? What, what's so special about Pentecost? The better question is this. What's so ordinary about today? It's not ordinary at all, is it? If indeed... It's by these very things, word and sacrament, and it is. By these things that God sees fit to teach of his mighty works and to plant as, as, as a seed faith and then nourish that faith and, and water it to grow it. If by these things he, he designs to plant and grow faith within us, then, then you, you who are in the youth and spring of your life, you, Nicholas, and others here today, as you grow in years, don't cut yourself off from these vital words of our Lord and of him, about him and his sacrament. Don't cut yourself off because the world will seek to cut you off from them. 
It'll grow in the way as weeds. Don't cut yourself off and pray. Pray that as you grow older, you'll always hunger and you'll always thirst for these things. And may that be the prayer of all of us, too, who move from the spring of our years to the summer and then the autumn of our life, that as we grow in years, we would never presume to have grown wiser than the triune God who gives these things to us in order to use them and use them often. But be you young or old, be under no illusions. You'll be mocked, just as they were on the day of Pentecost. You too will be mocked. You'll be ridiculed by those who, by nature, don't know the things of the Spirit of God and would think them foolish. You'll be dismissed as weak-minded for the preaching that you come to hear and this sacrament of Christ's body and blood you receive today, Nicholas, you for the very first time, this word and sacrament that you come here to receive, you'll be ridiculed about it. Maybe you'll be thought less of by some, maybe even family. Because of the high priority that you make of it for yourselves or for your children, you'll be called closed-minded because of the exclusivity that Christ Jesus declares about himself, and therefore that we as Christians must also confess, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he says, no one comes unto the Father but by me. You'll be criticized for agreeing with Peter, who said there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, no other name than the name of Christ. Maybe you'll be marginalized by some because compelled by love for them, you can't leave unsaid what you would long to communicate to them, that which once was communicated to you, the saving work of Christ Jesus and what it means for each and every one of us. It brings to mind the image that archaeologists unearthed some time ago found when excavating the site of a school for imperial pages, errand boys, from third century Rome. The image shows a boy, his hand raised. He's worshiping the, a figure that's on a cross. And that figure, it looks like a man, but it has the head of a, a donkey. Scrawled in writing, scrawled in the writing of a, of a young person, are the mocking words, Alexamenos worships his God. You're not so far away from that. Nearby that inscription is another inscription, written by the hand of another, obviously the hand of another, and it says, Alexamenos is faithful. For your intentional or perhaps unintentional confession of the faith, some will mock you. But I tell you, others will thank God for you eternally. They'll thank God because they couldn't help but notice the priority that you set. They couldn't help but notice the stand that you were compelled by conviction to take. They couldn't help notice a word that you simply couldn't let go unsaid, even though you risk reputation in saying it. 
Some will notice. A seminary professor I had once told of a man in a parish who joined a well, the, the well-seasoned members of the evangelism committee. They were that day to go and make house calls, cold calls, going knocking on doors. One experienced and well-spoken member of the team was, was paired with a new one. Very shy, stammering, somewhat awkward man. And this seasoned member wasn't all that pleased about that. Off they went. The next Sunday there was a husband and wife couple visiting the church for the very first time. And so in conversation with them after the service, the pastor learned that they'd come because of a visit of these two men. And so naturally the pastor said, well, I suppose it was our seasoned evangelism member who introduced you to our church and, and told you about us and convinced you to come. And the husband responded, actually, no, it was the other man, that rather shy, somewhat self-conscious fellow. You see, knowing how hard it was for him to be here, or rather be there at our place, to, and to say what, what, he, what, what he had to really work to get himself to say, we figured this must be so important to him that he would put himself through all of that, that we had to come and see what this was all about. Led by the confession of Christ to his word and life-giving sacraments, those two were led to Christ himself, who comes to you by the Holy Spirit, comes to you even today through his word and his sacraments. Nicholas, at the end of the service today, you'll bear this crucifix, this cross, out in procession, recession. It's very fitting for the day. It's fitting for life, for the confession of the faith. And because of the confession of the faith, crosses will be borne by you. And they'll be borne by us all. Publicly, as you confess, the faith of your baptism, you ensure that. But you're bearing the cross, Nicholas, and in leading the, the recession, the exit out today, is fitting, I think, for another reason, too. As the church of our Lord Christ, the church of his Pentecost, as those called and kept by the gospel and enlightened by those sacred gifts, as, as those who bear his name, even as you do, Christian. It's fitting because as his church, we follow where our Lord, the Lord of the church, leads, knowing that he leads and guides and defends us, the members of his church. The day of Pentecost, then, the heart of it wasn't a flash in time with rushing wind and tongues of fire. But it was the inauguration, the heart of it was the inauguration of the very word and sacrament method. A very methodical method. Instituted by which our Lord would, through the Holy Spirit, call and gather, enlighten, sanctify, and against all adversities keep us as blessed members of his church. Christ. That's the beating heart of this day, the heart 
that beats on today for you in word and in sacrament. And it will never cease to pulse until the living Christ comes again. God keep us by his spirit in the faith until that day. Blessed Pentecost to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.